Well, good morning. Uh, today, as Chad said, we're getting into Exodus 3 and 4. And these are two of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. It's the story of the burning bush, and this uh, interaction with God and Moses has always filled me with a sense of awe and wonder. And I'll admit that I think a lot of this is because I grew up watching the movie called The Prince of Egypt. I don't know if you've ever seen this animated movie. It's by DreamWorks. And while there are quite a lot of historical and even some biblical inaccuracies, I think it does a really good job at just depicting the majesty and even the power of God as he works to save his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so today my prayer has been that as we are just opening the word of God and hearing this conversation between God and Moses, I pray that we too would stand in awe of the presence and the glory of God. That the self-sustaining, the all-sufficient creator of the universe, he has chosen to come down to intercede in worldly affairs and to rescue his people. Eric reminded us when we opened worship kind of this, this scene, what's been happening. The Israelites have been enslaved by the Egyptians. They're, they're crying out to God while they're being oppressed. In Exodus 2, it ended with God saying that he had heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. He saw their situation, and he knew. And today, we see how God responds. What's easy to miss if we just read that and jump straight into chapter 3 is that 40 years pass in between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Moses spent 40 years as a prince of Egypt right, living in royalty, and then one day he tries to step up for his own people. He sees an Israelite being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster, and he strikes and kills this Egyptian, but what happens is his people actually end up rejecting him, and people know what he has done, and in fear he flees out to Midian, and he begins to be a shepherd, and so for 40 years he is now a nomadic shepherd in the land of Midian. Half of his life was in Egypt, and now half of it has been in the wilderness, And it's to this shepherd that God reveals himself. And he calls Moses to come and to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. And we'll see today that Moses is quite the reluctant leader. But God is a committed savior. He is working to bring about the salvation of his people. From from this story, from Moses' example, we have a big idea that we want to learn from Moses That we would obey and trust God as he works to redeem his people. We'll see this played out, but as we're working through the passage, we'll first focus on seeing how God has come down and he has a plan to rescue his people. And then the majority of our time will be spent in this conversation between Moses and God, where Moses keeps bringing up objections for why he shouldn't be a leader. Yet God answers those and continues to promise that he will be faithful And then finally, we'll kind of set the scene as Moses goes back into Egypt. To start off, though, we'll be in Exodus 3, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the pew. And if you don't have a Bible at all, that is a gift to you. We want you to have the words of our Lord. So if you have your scripture, your copy of scripture, would you open with me to Exodus 3? And we'll read these first 10 verses. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So you just picture this in your mind, that you're, you're walking through a wilderness, and all of a sudden, there's a bush that is on fire, yet it keeps burning, it's not consumed. And then a voice speaks to you from this bush. It, it says that it's the the angel of, of the Lord that has appeared as fire in this bush. And this has some people to question, is this an actual angel? Right? We see in other areas of Scripture, there's very clearly defined angelic messengers. Think of Gabriel appearing to Mary, where he comes with a message from the Lord. Yet here in this instance, right, this angel or this appearance is addressed as God himself. And many people believe that this is not necessarily an angel, but perhaps a theophany. That's a big old word. But a theophany is just a visible manifestation of the presence of God. So what this is meaning is that in the burning bush, in these flames, God is present before Moses. And we see this as, as he is or speaking to God in the bush. And many people think this might be a, a appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And that's another big phrase. But it's the idea that before Jesus took on flesh and came to earth, he appeared as these theophanies to interact with his people. So he is there, present in the flames of this bush. In God's presence, it's often signified by fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, it says that the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We've seen his his presence symbolized by fire before. It happened um, in Genesis 15. He's with Abraham and he's establishing the covenant. So they make sacrifices and they split the animals and then God passes through. And he passes through as a flaming torch of fire and as a smoking pot when he establishes this covenant with Abraham. And now we read and we see that he has now remembered that covenant and he again appears as fire in this bush. And later on in the narrative, right, we see that God leads his people as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. One day when, when they come back to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, God descends upon this mountain with fire and smoke and lightning. 
and thunder. And I think this imagery of fire is an apt um, image for God. Right? Fire is both captivating, yet also dangerous. It draws you in, yet it can also burn you. And so Moses comes in to, to see what, what he's looking at. And from the fire, God speaks to him. And we see Moses' response that he is afraid to even look at God. He recognizes that he is a sinful man who is in the presence of a holy God. And how can man stand before the Lord? Moses is simply told to take off his shoes for he is standing upon holy ground. There's nothing ritually uh, purifying from just taking off your shoes. But, but what happened was Moses was obedient to the word of the Lord. And because of that, he's allowed to remain in God's presence on this holy ground. And while he is there, God speaks to him. right, And he says that he has seen the affliction of the Israelites. He's heard their cry. He knows of their suffering. And now he has come down to deliver them. Three of those four words were the same in chapter 2, where he had seen, he heard, he knew, but it said that he remembered his covenant. And now in this one, we see that God has come down. He has shown up on the scene, and he is about to deliver the Israelites. This appearance of the burning bush is it starts the incredible journey of God working to rescue his people from the Egyptians. Last week, Chad said that, that the Exodus, or this book, it's the gospel of the Old Testament. It's the good news of the people of Israel. They were in, in bondage. They were in slavery in Egypt. Yet God came down, and he has rescued them from that so that they might be his people, and he might be their God, and they might worship him in freedom. And this Old Testament gospel points forward to the gospel that we know and we get to celebrate today. And that gospel, the good news is that we are all in, in bondage and slavery to sin. Yet God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life and he has made a way for, for believers to be saved from their sins. And that was through his death on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead proving that he was the son of God. And that we can be saved from sin and have a relationship with God. That he will be our God. And he, or we will be his people and he will be our God. And if you have done this, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then we have a role to play. There is a calling and a command, a commissioning on our own lives to go and tell of this good news that we have received. But this can be scary to do. We can raise objections in our own life like we're about to see Moses raise multiple objections in his own life. You know, I'm sure as, as God is, is speaking to Moses of his, his plan for deliverance, Moses is excited. Yet then God turns and says, well, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And quickly Moses starts to backpedal. And he raises all these objections for why he's just not qualified. And it's funny to think about, Moses wrote this book. Right? He could have easily not included those events. But I'm glad that he did. Right? That he shared with us, that he was humble enough to show that he was scared. He didn't feel qualified. Frankly, he didn't want to be this leader because I can personally relate to this. Right? Have you ever felt unqualified or nervous to step out in faith and trust God? If so, 
then this passage is for you. To see that God walks alongside those whom he calls and he is sufficient when we are lacking. And so I'm going to read a big section. It goes from uh, verse 11 from chapter 3 all the way to verse 17 of chapter 4. It's a lot, but it's this conversation in between Moses and God. And so I want us to get a picture of the whole thing and then we'll dive back into it. And as we're going, you might note each time that Moses raises an objection. There's going to be five of them, so it'll break up the passage. And so maybe as you're going, note those or number those, and we'll come back to them. But listen to how how Moses first responds to God when God says, I want to send you to Pharaoh. We're going to pick up in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. That I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God. Well, if I come to the people of Israel. And and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am Who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent you. I am, this is the the divine name of God. It's it's signified by the word Lord in all caps. And so we'll see that come up through the rest of this passage. Verse 15 God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The I am, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the I am, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt, he will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. After I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or or listen to my voice, for they will say, "The, The Lord I am did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the I am said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the I am, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. 
Again, the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, then may, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the I am said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the I am? Now therefore go, and I will be with you, your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his words and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do these signs. So I know that was a lot. But just again, picture the scene that you are standing before the presence of the Lord and you're continuing to object to his calling. But, but in these objections, we, we see Moses' heart, and we can relate to some of these own object, objections in our own life. So I want to go back and look at each one and see how God continues to respond and continues to speak to Moses. And in each instance, then, I also want to see how we should respond in obedience and trust in the Lord. So the first one was in verses 11 and 12. Of chapter 3, Moses essentially had said, well, who am I to do this? God, I, I'm not qualified. I can't, I can't convince Pharaoh to do anything. I'm sure in the, the back of his mind, he remembered when he had already tried to stand up for Israel, right? When he struck down the Egyptian taskmaster, yet he was rejected by his own people. So God, why would I go to these people when they've already rejected me? And how does God respond to him? He doesn't actually give Moses a pep talk, right? I, I, a lot of preachers today will say, what, what you need is already inside of you. You just need to be the real you. God has already placed it there. God doesn't really answer that way. He actually agrees that Moses isn't qualified, right? He just begins his conversation with the word but. He essentially says, you're right, Moses. You're not qualified. You can't lead my people but... I will be with you. And, and, and I promise you, you can hang your hat on this, that, that I will lead my people back here and you will worship me on this very mountain. Man, we can echo these objections in our own life, right? Who am I to be discipling someone? I'm still young. Who am I to go share the gospel? That's a scary task. Who am I to call someone out in their sin when I, I've made mistakes of my own? Who am I to step up and lead somewhere at church when there are other people who could do a better job than me? And the thing is, right, some of these objections are true. Yet, God has called you to a very specific place where you're at right now. 
And so our response should be obedient where we are currently at and to trust in God's ability and his power in the midst of our own inadequacies. One theologian, he had this quote kind of describing God's response to Moses. He says, He met Moses' inadequacy with the pledge of his own sufficiency and called Moses to believe the promises and to demonstrate the obedience of faith. This is directly applicable to us, that we are inadequate, yet we have a pledge that God is sufficient. So would we believe God's promises and simply obey out of faith? And then there's another question from Moses. He asks, well, God, who are you? And this is a a big section. It's it's the rest of chapter 3. He asks, God, what is your name? And right, we know in Oftentimes in the Old Testament, names have a lot of meanings to them. And so this question is kind of like, God, what are you like? When I go back to my people and they say, how do we know that truly the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sent you? What's this God's name? What's a revelation that you know from this God so that we can know you're telling the truth? And God reveals his divine name. He says, I am who I am. Go tell them that I am has sent you. This this is an odd title if we just think of it as a name, but then we realize, right, that this, this is somewhat of a description of what our God is like, that he is I am. He is preexistent. He always was, he is, and he always will be. Our God is self-sufficient. He is actively present. Our God just isn't there, right, but rather our God upholds all of existence. There is a reality because our God is the I am. Let's think about the burning bush, right? God didn't just sit around for 40 years confined to this bush waiting for someone to walk by. And thankfully, Moses finally did. And he goes, oh, good. Now I can go save Israel. God is the author of creation, right? He has been orchestrating these events for this very moment. He is the eternally existent one. And thinking through I am, I think it even kind of makes us rethink this idea of the burning bush. Think with me for a second that that's what, what's impressive is not necessarily that sticks weren't burning, right? If you've ever been camping, you're trying to get a fire lit, there's wet logs, and they just don't light. What's impressive is that this fire is burning, and it requires no fuel whatsoever to continue to burn. God requires nothing from humanity. He is self-sufficient. He is the flame that then comes and dwells and appears to people. He is the I am. And his presence means deliverance for his people. He has come down to deliver them. And and he's not just leading a prison break, right? He's not plotting how we can just run away from Egypt. He is saying, I will defeat the world superpower. And he does this simply by stretching out his hand. Verse 22, it, it had said that, he promises that the Egyptians will, pl- or Israel will plunder the Egyptians. And this gets fulfilled in Exodus 12 as they're leaving. They truly do just take spoils with them. And a lot of this gold and silver and, and jewelry it is used to make the articles of the tabernacle. So the I am has come, and he is leading deliverance for his people. And we also know of another I am, and that is Jesus Christ. In John 8, 58, he said, before Abraham was, I am. That is a 
wild statement when you think about. Right? It doesn't make sense unless you go back and you realize he's uh, naming himself with the divine name of God. I am Yahweh. This is a bold statement to make, but it is proven true by his resurrection from the dead. This Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he beckons you to come and to know him. And if today, if you don't actually know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then your call to obey and trust, your act of obedience is to repent of your sins and to recognize that you are in need of a Savior. And then you believe in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and he rose again so that you can have a relationship with God. If you are a believer, though, perhaps you're struggling and wondering, is this God worthy of my service? Is he worthy of of worship? Is this a good God? And if that's where you're at today, then then your call for obedience and trust is to go and to study God's word and to trust that he will meet you here, that the I am, the God of the universe, will come and meet you through his words. This is an incredible situation. We're getting to read the first firsthand account of someone interacting with God. Right in Genesis, people talked with God, but those were stories passed down to Moses. And this is now Moses writing what it was like to speak with the presence of God. Yet even in God's presence, he continues to ask questions and raise objections. Moving on into chapter 4, his next question is essentially, well, what about other people? What if people don't believe me? And how many times have you asked yourself that when you're thinking about going out for evangelism? What if they don't listen to what I'm saying? And God responds by giving him three different signs. And as we go through Exodus, um, you'll see this phrase, signs and wonders, often used. And they're closely related, but they're subtly different. Where a wonder is something that, that stops you and grabs your attention. But the sign then points to a deeper meaning behind that. And so with each of these three wonders, there's a sign associated with it. First, there's the, the staff that becomes a serpent. I like that Moses had included that he ran away, because I would do the same thing. But then God tells him, hey, go grab it by the tail, which is not a good idea to grab a snake like that. But when he grabs it, the the snake, the serpent, again becomes a shepherd's staff. And this wonder points to the sign that God is greater than Egypt. Because Egypt, one of their gods, was a serpent. It was a symbol of worship for them. Even with the pharaoh, his his headdress had had a serpent on it. So it was a symbol of royalty. And so for a serpent to get turned back into a shepherd's staff a profession that the Egyptians looked down upon, God is saying, I am greater than the Egyptian gods and even Pharaoh himself. The second sign is this leprous hand. And it's showing that God has power over humanity. Additionally, God is able to cleanse that which is unclean. And then finally, there's the Nile water turning to blood. This looks forward to, to one pl- uh, plague that he will send on Egypt. It also shows that God has power over nature. And once again, he is greater than Egypt, where the Nile is really uh, a lifeline for them. And you know, seeing these miracles, it can be easy to say, well, if we could do stuff like that, evangelism would be so easy. If we could go do these tricks on UNCC's campus this next week, next Sunday, this house would be packed. And I want to pose to you that I think we have something that is more convincing than a miracle. And that is the word of God. 
And there's three instances in 2 Peter 1. Peter is talking about his experience at the transfiguration when he saw God or Jesus glorified. He says that that, that experience was incredible, yet there is the prophetic word even more sure, and you would do well to pay attention to it. Or in uh, Luke 16, we have this, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man goes to hell and he's pleading, would you send Lazarus back so that people would go and believe? My family would believe. And Jesus in the parable, he says, unless people have the law and the prophets, and if they don't believe that, they won't even believe someone who has risen from the dead. And of course, we know Christ was risen from the dead, yet people still don't believe. And then Romans 10 Right? The only way someone can have salvation is by hearing the words of the Lord. So we truly have all we need. It is more than enough because we have the words of God. Yet, we bring up objections. It's scary to share the gospel. What if people don't believe me? And that's when we just continue to obey. Our role is to sow seeds of the gospel for our God's word, it never returns void. It always accomplishes its purpose. And so our act of obedience is to continue to share the gospel and trust that God will cause spiritual results. All that being said, it would be fun to have a staff that becomes a snake. That would be pretty cool. But even without that, Moses still has doubts. Going to verse 10 and 12 of chapter 4, he then essentially just says, I can't. He goes back to his inadequacy. God, I, I fumble my words. I can't lead your people. He's looking for any excuse not to do this. And, and we do this too, right? Man, I haven't taken a seminary class in theology, so I can't, I can't enter into a theological debate. Or, man, with, with sharing the gospel, what if someone asks me a question and I, I don't know how to answer it? But as a disciple of Christ, you are an ambassador of God and you have been trusted with the message of reconciliation that our world so desperately needs to hear. Right? God doesn't want a, a perfect answer to every question. God wants you exactly as he has created you. He makes mouth. He makes those deaf and blind and mute. And so he has specifically placed you where you need to be to reach that friend at work, a relationship that you have that a seminary professor might not. So our act is to step out in faith and trust that God will supply you with what you need in every situation. And we get to Moses' final objection where he just says, God, I don't want to. And it is at this point that the anger of the Lord is kindled. And we see that God, he understands that we are frail, fallen humans. We make mistakes, yet he is sufficient despite our faults. What displeases God is our disobedience. God wants you to come to him with your fears and failures and mistakes. He is the only one who can bear those for you. What he doesn't want is you to flee in the opposite direction like Jonah did. And so would we simply obey the commands of God and trust in his presence, his promises, and his providence? Moses will learn to do this as we see throughout the book of Exodus but for now, God graciously provides Aaron, his brother-in-law, to help, or his brother to help him. And so, with the promise of Aaron at his side, and more importantly, with God behind him, Moses begins making his way back to Egypt. We've got one last quick section where we're setting the stage as God makes his plan. 
you pick up real quick, we'll finish chapter 4. In verse 18, it says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and, he, and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do uh, before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall, shall say to the Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord uh, with which he had sent him to speak and the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard the word of the Lord, that he had visited his people Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So after 40 years, Moses begins his return to Egypt. Verses 21 and 23 are kind of a quick summary again of God's reminder of what Moses should go and do. Go proclaim these words, work these signs, but he predicts that Pharaoh won't let them go. And so he says, go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son, and if he does not let them go, then I will take Pharaoh's firstborn. And this looks forward to the final plague of Egypt, but it is also the first time that God calls Israel his son. And we see that God doesn't just save and rescue people, he also adopts us into his family. There's one hard phrase in there when it says that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. And we'll go into more detail on this when it, when it comes up in the narrative. But two quick verses is one in James 1.13 where God says he can't tempt someone to sin. So God will not lead Pharaoh into sin. However, God can give people over into their sin, as we see in Romans 1. And so God can remove his restraining grace and allow Pharaoh to just follow the sinful desires of his broken heart of stone. And now we have a, a very odd event in verses uh, 24 through 26. This scene is not in the Prince of Egypt movie. Um, while it's an odd event, right, it's got a very simple message. And that's simply obey what God says. God has given circumcision as a sign to the Israelites to be his people. It sets them apart. Yet it seems that Moses has not circumcised his sons. And God is emphatically saying, if you were to lead my people, you must obey my words. Moses somewhat struggles with this. And, and later on in Numbers, he doesn't follow God's words exactly. And he's not even allowed to go into the promised land. So once again, we see this need to obey the Lord and trust in what he says. And finally, we get this last scene where Moses and Aaron are reunited. They go to the people of Israel, and we see their response. 
Remember, there, there was a fourfold thing for God that he saw, he heard, he knew, and he came down. And now we see that the people, they believed Moses and Aaron. They heard the word of the Lord. And so they bowed down and they worshiped God. I'll go ahead and call the band back up as we conclude. But I just want to remind us that worship truly is the end goal. That God is redeeming his people from Egypt so that they might go out into the wilderness and be free to worship him. And this is the end goal for us as well. If we have known Jesus Christ as our Savior, we look forward to the day when we stand in the presence of the great I Am and worship Him. Until then, we are commissioned and sent out. We are called, like Moses, as, as ambassadors to tell of this good news that we know. So would we continue to obey God and trust in Him? Would you bow with me in prayer, and then we'll respond and worship after this. Heavenly Father, God, we are humbled that you came down. God, we, we are amazed at, at the mighty acts uh, that, that you do in this story of the Exodus. God, the things that we believe are to be true. You, with a mighty hand, you delivered your people. God, we celebrate that you are a God who is victorious. And we thank you that we too have means to be freed from slavery to sin, and that is through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would respond as the Israelites, that we bow down before you and we worship our God and Savior. It's your name, your name we pray. Amen.